National is this week inking a fresh coalition and beginning a three-year parliamentary term. It campaigned hard on bringing the economy back into balance and being a better economic manager than the previous Labour government. So what does that all mean for businesses, workers, trade and institutions such as the Reserve Bank? With us is MBR economics commentator at Massey University's Christoph Schumacher, chair of the India-New Zealand Business Council Michael Fox and first union policy analyst Edward Miller. Well, first to you, Edward, what are the pressing issues for you and, and your members? Well, I, I guess in the present moment, everybody's concerned about the cost of living crisis, you know, inflationary pressures. People are feeling it every time they go to the supermarket. People notice it every time they look at their bank statements and seeing their mortgage payments coming out, all of these kind of kinds of things. There is a, a small um, chunk of policy that's being proposed by, by a national act and New Zealand first, quite possibly, whether they're in the mix or not, um, around tax cuts for low and middle income workers. That will put a small amount of, of money in the bank, but it does mean, you know, our members are pretty understanding of the fact that tax cuts are public service cuts and the scale of those public service cuts that we're seeing proposed are pretty significant. The, the line is that it's all going to be frontline and, and none of it's uh, sorry none of it's going to be frontline it's all back office stuff back office stuff affects the ability of the frontline people to do their stuff so there is concern about that in a number of places one of the areas amongst all the parties where there's consistent agreement right now on what they want to do is ditching fair pay agreements getting rid of industry bargaining our members are pretty concerned about that we've got a couple of them in the process at the moment um, the most advanced is in the bus industry where we've seen industry collaboration effectively address a nationwide industry crisis so we're particularly concerned about that same goes in the supermarket industry there's clear kind of problems that exist in that sector you know harking back to the cost of living crisis discussion we we want to see these these uh, agreements move forward and we want we want um, the, the incoming government to really consider the productivity benefits that come along um, from industry bargaining. If you look at pretty much every other country on in the OECD that has better productivity outcomes than, than New Zealand, almost all of them practice some form of industry bargaining. If you want to get rid of fair pay agreements, okay, that's what you've committed to, find a better system for doing industry bargaining that, that addresses some of the concerns that they might have about you know excessive bureaucracy or whatever that is, but bring us back something that delivers productivity benefits because we have seen a slow decline government to government in productivity and I don't see much in terms of policy being proposed to actually address that productivity issue. Christoph, to you, what details or information do you want to hear first up from National about what they are planning to do with the economy? First of all, the, the economy itself is still very fragile. We've had a very negative growth in the last quarter of last year it was pretty much zero in the first quarter and we've just started to gain momentum so that's a good thing um, and we need to make sure that continues inflation is still um, way higher than our target levels are and as it would say that hits people hard uh, every time they go to the supermarket it's like having another gst imposed on them every time you go to the supermarket things are about six percent more expensive than they used to be um that's harsh that um is an obstacle to to growth and i absolutely agree with edward the productivity level is, is shocking in New Zealand compared to other countries um, uh, of, of similar size. And we, we should be doing a lot better. And I haven't seen too much either um, in, in that as well. And the bigger picture, uh, National was campaigning with sort of a sensible fiscal policy. 
uh, that's definitely a good thing. Nobody would complain about that. And cutting um, expenditure, government expenditure. We we know labor increased um, employees at ministries quite dramatically and we weren't quite sure what we were getting for this extra money. Uh, National and both Act have said we're going to be cutting those things down, um, spending to a minimum. There is always a risk that things don't run as, as, as we are used to. Um, the bigger concern for me is that National all also pointed out that they want to return back to surplus and reduce our deficit. Um, which is a good thing. But if you re want to reduce your mortgage, what you do is you cut spending and you start to increase your income. Well, but National also uh, indicates they want to cut taxes, but that means they're reducing their income as well. So I'm not quite sure I see. It sounds very good uh, how they want to uh, return to surplus, balance the budget um, and decrease debt. And, and we've seen this before happening, but at the same time, um, proposing um, tax cuts. I'm not sure how they want to finance um, those. And um, again, in, in line with what Edward said, uh, ACT has come out uh, with some bold statements that pushes um, market interaction back into the employer's court. I mean, ultimately, ACT is a liberal party and liberalism means not anything goes, but it means the government should stay out and let market forces uh, sort things out. And that normally um, is in favor of employers and not employees. So we've heard suggestions about cutting a public holiday down, the uh, minimum wage increase should be put on a hold. So it really is, is a liberal approach to market interference by simply saying, um, we do the minimum and uh, let the rest sort themselves out, which is always tougher for employees. And Edward, we've also heard they may introduce more flexibility into paying parental leave. Yeah, there has been some discussion around that. It was a bit of a political football and in, in towards the the end of this last government uh, with Labour. Uh, Labour has sort of a, an established agenda about what they want to do in paid parental leave and, uh, and National were proposing that uh, essentially that, that fathers could borrow from, from mothers uh, within that space. That ends up being a cut to mothers' um, access to parental leave if you if you open it up like that. Look, we we need to increase provision to parental leave, whether it's for fathers or mothers. I've just gone through the process of having a young child. I, I know that it takes an awful lot of time, an awful lot of cost. It's also it's a cost on employers. We're very understanding of that, but these are these are the costs that sort of that we pay for having a decent society in which children flourish and you have decent educational outcomes and you have a well-trained and um, adaptable workforce as a result of that. It's crucial to make sure we, we expand pay parental leave for both parents and it's it's a, a magical kind of outcome that comes for children as a result of that and the economy benefits from that. If you look at the most productive economies in the world, they're all the economies that, that grant paid the most paid parental leave as well. One other area of flexibility that that 
uh, they're pushing for is to um, bring back 90-day provisions for all employers or 90-day trial periods. I think that would be um, a major mistake to bring those 90-day trial periods back. We haven't, we didn't see, you know, there was very close economic analysis that was done during that period, and we didn't see the kind of uh, employees that were supposed to be getting the benefits of those getting new benefits. There wasn't any real job creation that happened as a result of that, and it didn't go to uh, the the most downtrodden parts of the workforce, or sorry, parts of the country that were supposed to benefit from those, it really gives employers the flexibility to get rid of employees who, for example, say, oh, maybe I will join the union, maybe I will uh, ask for a little bit more in the pay packet, that kind of thing. Or it gives an opportunity for an, an employer, uh, employer just to cut the costs of getting rid of employees they were trying to get rid of anyway. I don't think it's worthwhile going down that route. Uh, Christoph, if the, they flow through with cutting the public service, will that mean a, a rise in the unemployment rate or will they just come back into other roles, say contracted? Uh, we, we don't really know that yet, but um, frankly, unemployment is not the biggest issues we have in New Zealand because the unemployment rate is actually um not too bad uh it, it it could have a spillover effect but i think it's just a necessary uh way of of cutting costs and uh in 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 response to what it was said as well there's ultimately you can't have your cake and, and eat it too it's uh if you impose more cost and red tape and both act and national want to get rid of some for businesses um, they will pass the costs on to consumers which uh, pushes prices up i mean uh, a large part of the inflation we had was simply due to wage increases uh, which were passed on by by companies so it's, it's always a double-edged sword that yes we do want to protect um the workforce we have to and, and, and we should um businesses shouldn't be given every freedom just to get good of people as, as they wish but at the same time you also need to understand most restrictions are imposed um the more costs they are um the more inflationary pressure we will get because businesses always pass these on to to the customer Let's bring you in, Michael Fox. Uh, Christopher Luxon has mentioned India as a priority in his first term. What are the opportunities there for businesses here in New Zealand and India? Oh, thanks. Uh, so I think the India is a real exciting opportunity for New Zealand. Um, it is the world's fifth largest economy on its way to becoming a third uh, and then growing in incredibly strongly in one of the real bright spots in a pretty challenging uh, global economic environment. Um, I think you know what we've what we've probably recognised that is that New Zealand has underinvested in the relationship with India. We've had very little engagement at prime minister level. For example, John Key being the last prime minister to go to India in 2016. Um, prime Ministers Hipkins and Ardern did meet um, Prime Minister Modi uh, at various meetings around the world, but we didn't do enough, uh, and we are playing catch up, to be frank. Um, but I think over the last little while, we actually have started to see good momentum in that relationship, both at a government level. Um, you know, former Prime Minister Damien O'Connor going several times. Uh, minister Faitiri. Uh, we had uh, the India's foreign minister come to New Zealand. Uh, so a lot of engagement at that government level, but also increasingly at business level. So a real focus on actually investing in that relationship, because I think what we're finding is that India, you know, stronger access to India, a stronger trading relationship with India can support New Zealand's economy uh, and New Zealand businesses. So we have started to see that momentum. We took New Zealand's largest ever trade delegation to India two or three months ago, um, probably not that smartly on the eve of G20. Uh, so, you know, 19 of the world's 
other largest economies in India and New Zealand turns up. Uh, but uh, but we were incredibly well received because actually the feedback from India is they can see that New Zealand, um, you know, both we can actually be a high value export destination for them. Um, you know, some studies saying that there is the, the, the ability for $14 billion worth of exports from India to New Zealand based on India's competitive advantages uh, and what New Zealand buys. Uh, but also that we need to invest across the board. So in, in, in increased diplomacy and in increased um, cultural, sporting uh, ties, education, all of these sorts of things, which actually uh, we need to do, we think, to build that broader relationship with India. Um, we were making good progress under the previous government over the last sort of 18 months or so. And um, I think, you know, if you needed any sign of how high India is on New Zealand's agenda, and just look at our election campaign, I think our politicians talked about India um, enough to put Indian politicians to shame. So I think there is that real focus mm. there uh, and I do think we'll make progress over the next little while and I think that's really important. Yeah, what are some of the sticking points because last time for Key and, and you were with, with him then were around dairy what are some of the sticking points do you think? I think dairy is a sticking point, um, and you know India and India is traditionally very protectionist of its, of its economy, but we are starting to see it open up, and we're starting to see India say, look, we do get the you know the benefits of um, free ur trade, um, but we're not going to walk into a free trade agreement overnight. That's the point that I make about actually we have to invest across the board, and we have to show that the relationship with New Zealand is worth investing in. Um, you know, the, India has the world knocking on its door. I was there just before COVID with with ministers Peters and Parkers, and you know the Aussies we were being told. That the Aussies were wiping the floor with us and we got stuck in Donald Trump's motorcade. So it just sort of goes to show you how much interest there is in India. Uh, and Australia did reap the benefits of that investment in the relationship and they invested a lot um, very strategically um, across that wider relationship over time and, and have an agreement covering 85-odd percent of their trade, um, albeit with some sensitive sectors carved out. So I think we do need to recognise that we're not going to get that FTA overnight, but if we can start to invest in that relationship, if we can make some progress on some specific sectors, um, for example, agri-tech, um, these sorts of areas where we can go and add value to India and get value in return. I think over time we build that, um, we build a platform to, to potentially an FTA, but it will take time. Yeah, what can Luxon achieve in three years, do you think? I think an FTA is a challenge in three years. To be frank, um, I think um, we, like I said, it's, it's not we're not going. It's not going to be China. We're not going to sign an FTA, and, and our economic, you know, relationship is going to flourish um, very quickly. It is going to have to be a case of of investing across the board, making progress in specific sectors, showing that we are willing to invest, and really making the case for for India to invest in New Zealand. Uh, but I, I, so I think over time we can actually make real progress, um, specific sectors, specific um, initiatives, and then I think over time we will get that FTA. But but I do, if we're being honest, I think three years is a, is a, is a challenge, will be a challenge. Mm. And what are the opportunities, do you think, Christoph, for New Zealand businesses within India? Um, first of all, it's, it's important that we diversify with our trade relations and, and get more countries on board because we've seen this just what's happening in, in Europe at the moment. Um, there's this political unrest and suddenly somebody who might have been your trading partner falls out of the equation uh, and then you, you need to have a plan B in, in place. And absolutely, Michael, those relationships take time and they, um, they should take time. Um, so what uh, ends up being signed is something 
something that benefits uh, both parties, but a better access to India, one of the largest economies, and actually quite advanced economy when it comes to technology, um, ITC um, sectors and so on. Um, there is um, a lot of cross benefits, uh, I believe, to be, to be had. And uh, it is time that uh, we expand more in, into that areas as well, because India is within our um, reach. So I believe um, for businesses, uh, easier access, especially uh, in the ITC technology sector, uh, would be a great opportunity in that for us. Mm. Because if we look at what Labour achieved during you know recent years, it managed to get a number of deals finalised and over the line quite quickly. Absolutely. Um, but as we know, with India, we are not quite as far as, as we could or should be. And we've seen Australia somehow always beats us to the punch in, in some of these um, agreements. Um, so absolutely, uh, we, we've seen what National did in their campaign that focusing on, on India. So um, I believe the first step, oh, we need to just progress uh, and probably faster um, than when we want to in order to get things rolling. There's always a danger that it, the periods where uh, governments are, are in are reasonably short, shorter than in, in a lot of other countries um, with only three years. So I think uh, government one start needs to really get going. I was just going to say, I do think it's worth when you talk about, you know, progress on free trade agreements, it's worth considering the wider context with which they're signed as well. You know, we signed the agreement with China because they wanted to start opening up the world, show that they they could do deals. It was the same with the UK post-Brexit. They wanted to, you know, they, they, they left the EU bloc. They needed to re-establish those trade relationships. They wanted to show that they could and that they were open to trade and leaders in trade. And the EU wanted to send a message around sustainability and this commitment to actually being open to trade on the right terms and wanting to, you know, progress a more sustainable, uh, you know, a more, uh, you know, a trade, a trade policy more sustainably focused. So I think there's all of these reasons why you do make progress on specific deals um, and they do need to be considered in that sort of wider context. Christoph, back to you. I'm interested to know your thoughts on whether the Reserve Bank will head to a single sole mandate of inflation targeting and what that might mean for unemployment. Um, first of all, it used to be sort of a single mandate on inflation targeting. That was the sole purpose. And uh, we separated um, the, the Reserve Bank and the Reserve Bank governor got a very specific contract effectively saying you're going to lose your job if inflation uh, goes outside the band. It was then in a next wave expanded to saying hey, it's not just inflation that matters, but also employment. But we have seen, especially in recent years, that it is the inflation target that really has an impact on, on the economy. Uh, we've seen inflation started to come down only when the OCR went up and uh, it is the strongest tool of monetary policy. I think the impact on employment or unemployment is, is will not be that large because we've had for a long period of time where it was just inflation and the rest follows suit. Um, these things are in, interlinked. Um, when inflation goes up, we do see an impact on unemployment unemployment um, but these things are so interlinked in an economy that indirectly uh, employment is not falling out of the equation when the reserve bank considers inflation because it's looking at medium-term um, price stability and these can only be guaranteed or that can only be guaranteed if employment is indirectly be taken into account so 
in I think it's it's a lot bit of about semantics, but um, the Reserve Bank has always focused on on inflation. Full stop. And Edward. Yeah, I, th I think it's really crucial to keep the dual mandate in there. It was seen as, or has been cast more recently as, as almost a radical idea to have an employment mandate alongside the inflation mandate. But if you look at sort of the uh, Reserve Bank of Australia, the Federal Reserve, they both have dual mandate systems. They're not, it's not a crazy kind of concept. Um, had we had a single mandate, we would have still had inflation over the past couple of years, um, but we wouldn't have seen unemployment reach the low levels that it reached. Um, and obviously the, the pandemic and the closing of borders and shortage of labor shortage, those are definitely factors in that low unemployment. But I think that low unemployment was a crucial factor in ensuring that over the over the last 18 to, to 24 months, workers were able to keep pace with inflation by and large, and in some cases outpace it. I mean, in our collective bargaining settlements where we were engaging with employers, we were able to get, you know, quite often seven, eight, nine percent um, agree, uh, wage increases on an annual basis for workers. That meant that workers were able to make, you know, every time they go into the supermarket, seeing that cost of living jump, seeing the, the price of milk, bread, etc. jumping, they were able to meet that. It's it's crucial to, to maintain that that balanced approach because the, the, at the end of the day, workers don't drive inflation, workers catch up to inflation, they may have a minor inflationary effect in there. The research that we did um, during the cost of living crisis period indicated that it was profits more than, than wages that were driving inflation. So having, having a dual mandate in there means that we can actually make sure that workers have the capacity to get in, uh, those, those decent increases to keep pace with inflation. But if we look at recent business surveys, business optimism has rebounded to uh, six-year levels. Do you share that optimism about the economy, Edward? Look, we're in a different space to what we were 18 months ago from a, from a workers' perspective, an organised labour perspective. Back then, we were able to sort of go into collective bargaining and demand six, seven, eight percent increases and get them without having to take industrial action. Now we're having to threaten industrial action to, to get five and six percent increases in, in some cases because a lot of big businesses are, are looking at their balance sheet and realizing that they're, or you, you know, looking at their cash flow statement, their ability to pay out dividends while servicing debt is getting more difficult. Unfortunately, that's the cost of having a labor force, you know, to, to meet the demands of their demands uh, of basic cost of living. It, it's, it is more difficult from a worker's perspective now. Um, I, we're going to get through it and it's not going to be a 2008, 2009 kind of crisis, confidence crisis situation, but it is going to be pretty tough, touch and go. And, you know, there's going to be large proportion sections of the community who really struggle over the, the next 18 to 24 months. And how confident are your members, Michael? Uh, well, I, I suppose it's worth speaking more broadly. I'm wearing a couple of hats here, one obviously being the Indian New Zealand Business Council, but I also work uh, at Zespri, so uh, in, in the horticulture sector. It is probably just worth noting how difficult it has been for businesses for the last couple of years. You know, if you take our sector, for example, two years ago, we had a significant quality issue because of the labour shortage. Um, the, the borders were closed, um, um, too few people, and, you know, the impact on the, on the industry was immense. We're talking sort of a billion dollars in fruit that we grew and couldn't sell, um, basically because of damage, you know, 
not too few people, too few, um, too few uh, quality checks, and essentially, you know, dealing with fruit, uh, and then a small nick on the fruit, for example, can be quite a big deal. So, a really significant uh, loss of value to the industry through that process, um, and a whole bunch of you know things done then to try and attract that labour. You know, we were paying well, we were, you know, putting on buses, meals, all of these sorts of things to try and attract the workforce. It was just a very, very challenging time. Uh, and then the last year um, with a warm winter, so we're dealing with we're a primary sector, uh, and we're dealing with the changing climate as well. So that last year we sort of the crop is 20% down on where we thought we would be. Um, so, you know, challenging challenging from a climate perspective, from a pandemic-driven policy perspective. But also I think it's worth looking at the, the, the global environment. Now we are seeing uh, we are seeing inflation. We are seeing uh, increasing the protectionist trading environment. It is getting harder in some markets to get fruit in, uh, and there's you know costs have gone up. So shipping, for example, through the pandemic, uh, and then we're dealing with a lot of policy changes in New Zealand. So how do you you know as a business owner you are dealing with a lot of change, um, you know so you your core business, but then there's also responding to the change, and it's not just here; it's in the markets as well. If you look at Europe's Green Deal, um, you know the the changes around packaging, for example, green claims, it just is a really challenging environment for business both from a cost perspective but also a response to all of the regulatory sort of change so so you know we do need to look across the board the impact on workers obviously but also the impact on businesses and how do we actually create an economy where people can succeed where we can strengthen our trading profile to bring that value back to New Zealand and and invest in all of these sorts of services that we that we know are so important mm. and Christoph finally to you do you think national and the coalition will be good economic stewards over the next three years? Um, first of all, time will tell. Um, they, they have the potential. I, I would see why why not. Um, they've come out with some good ideas, some changes, um, but there's nothing radical in, in there either. So I, I, um, time will tell whether they will be good managers. Um, cutting unnecessary spending is, is not a bad thing. Cutting some of the red tape is also um, a good thing because we've often heard from businesses they're spending now more time with compliance than actually doing doing their job. Um, that would benefit the workforce um, as well uh, because we do need to get our productivity up uh, and then quite uh, dramatically. Uh, so there wasn't too much in there right now, but uh, I, I would I don't see a reason why they couldn't be um, good managers of, of, of the economy. Christoph Schumacher and Michael Fox and Edward Miller, thanks for joining us. If you're hungry for more and want to join the discussion, head over to nbr.co.nz. Thanks for listening.